Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are engaging with the words at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy as we are beginning our uh, conclusion of Torah reading because we have, of course, special Torah readings at every one of the holidays. So it interrupts the lectionary. And, uh, and then between, we finish the book of Deuteronomy. And, uh, and then we begin the book of Genesis after uh, Simchat Torah. Right? At Simchat Torah, we finish Deuteronomy. We immediately begin Genesis, because God forbid we should ever think we are done with the book of Torah, and therefore get to take some kind of a break. It's not Jewish. If. Exactly. So I call it job security. Absolutely. Like, you're never finished. Um, but, right. So the messages from the rabbis, we immediately, as we be, end a be, uh, book of Torah, we immediately begin um, the next book. So we say, chazak, chazak, v'nit chazek, when we end, that we should be strong, we should be strengthened in order to continue our studies. Uh, and then we immediately begin the first verses of the next book. So <clears throat> we're coming up to the end. <clears throat> this is... <clears throat> The end of Moshe's speech to the people, the book of Deuteronomy, is Moshe's speech, his final goodbye speech to the people, his charge to them as they're getting ready to cross over into the promised land. He has been told already that he will not be going with them, uh, that he will be on this side um, of the Jordan as they cross over, and they'll be going over with, of course, Joshua. What strikes me this year a lot about this, and part of it was out of a Hartman study I did, um, was this discussion of Moshe as someone who describes himself as uh, of uncircumcised lips, that he has an inability to speak, that he has a speech impediment, that you know he doesn't speak well. So when God commissions him, you know that's one of Moshe's big things: is send somebody. You pick the wrong person. Send somebody else. You know I, I don't speak well. Right. So that he 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 has this this self assessment that he's not a man who can speak. And then we see Aaron speak for Moses. God says, don't worry. Aaron will speak for you. And in a lot of the plague narrative, we see that, you know, Aaron speaks um, for Moshe. Uh, And so it's a very interesting assessment from a man who spoke this. (laughs) Right? So... I mean, it's a big book. This is a thick book. This is like one of the thickest volumes, right, of, of commentary and, and text that we have is Deuteronomy. And so Moshe, who can't speak, speaks like an incredible, not only an incredible amount, but some of the most beautiful words of Torah that we have, right? It's a very eloquent, in some places, a very eloquent book. Uh, and so it's, a, it's an interesting self-assessment. And uh, at, the, at the study, what we talked about was one of the things we came to, which was really interesting, is you know, that perhaps you know, this becomes, uh, in a way, redemption. The, the book of Deuteronomy is redemption from Moshe's speech when he's told he won't lead them into the promised land. So do we remember what happened? Right? They're dealing with the rock. He's supposed to speak to the rock, and he doesn't. He hits the rock. 
So Moshe didn't speak and acted instead of speaking. And, uh, and then, remember, some people want to, some commentators want to argue that the reason that they don't, that God is so angry is because he says, shall we get water from this rock mm-hmm. for you? And that it is his misspeaking mm-hmm. there, his misspeech, that then condemns him to die in the desert. So no speech when he's supposed to speak, then speaking incorrectly when he does speak, and that Deuteronomy becomes kind of a redemption um, for all these places of problematic speech for Moses. All of it. All of it. So this is a separate scroll that is found when they are renovating the temple. They find a scroll. Um, those of you at home, you know, air quotes, uh, and and it is air quotes authenticated by Hulda the prophetess as being legitimate. Uh, and old and it is then accepted as being you know some kind of lost tradition you know lost text Uh, but of course it is a religious reform this is a very calculated religious reform the book of Deuteronomy Um, in many places it's theology and it's uh, call to practice differs very much from other books of the Torah so it is it is a self-contained Thing and it is definitely, definitely um, by you know, the author that we call D, right, the Deuteronomist, uh, and and is a very clear agenda. All right, um, but but taking it, I had a, my Bible teacher, Dr. Tikva Frymerkensky of blessed memory. Um, she always used to, I used to love to tear it apart, and she would say, "Okay, Amy, that's lovely, but you, you we are given this as a whole, so you also have to learn to appreciate." the whole, not just tearing it apart to find the pieces and evidence and dating and you know, all that stuff that I would get excited about, um, having never studied the you know, documentary hypothesis before. And she said, but we are given this as a whole. So we also have to step back then from that kind of dissection and, and appreciate it as a whole. So in that sense, this is Moshe's redemption, right? When we talk about all five books together and the whole story together, it's in that sense that in a way this redeems... Moshe's, you know, lack of speech, difficulty speaking, wrong speech, and and we have this beautiful, beautiful um, book that is his speaking um, at the end of the collection and at the end of his life. So you know, every year I also wrestle with how I feel about Moshe and where I'm sitting with it. But this this year I'm feeling I don't know if it's because where I'm at, um, but I feel really bad for Moshe this year. <laughs> <laughs> I feel really bad for him. I just, it's, it's, this year was hard. It was hard. I read Aviva Zornberg, and it really, yeah, it's been hard. But we're, we're going to get through it. It's going to be okay. Um, so we're going to start uh, 31.1. Moses went and spoke these things to all Israel. He said to them, I'm now 120 years old. I can no longer be active. 
Moreover, the Lord has said to me, you shall not go across yonder Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over before you, and he himself will wipe out these nations from your past, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who shall cross before you, as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, kings of the Amorites, and to their countries when he wiped them out. The Lord will deliver them up to you, and you shall deal with them in full accordance with the instruction that I have enjoined upon you. Be strong and resolute. Be not in fear or in dread of them, for the Lord your God himself marches with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Okay. So, Vayelech Moshe means what? Our first words? Moses went. Moses went. Where'd he go? Mm. <laughs> Where'd he go? Should say Vayelech Moshe El Ohel Moed. Moshe went to the tent of meeting. Moshe went. Vayelech Moshe. And Moshe went. And spoke these words. Right? You can say in, in the South, you know, he went and said these things, right? But <laughs> you, you, that's not. You need a place he's going. And for, to use this word, to actually go, this is not a euphemism. This means to walk, right? It's physical. It's place related. Hmm? So, so, excellent, Mehmet. So, so these are very rabbinic questions. If he's Vayelechim, where was he? Where is he Vayelechim from? Are they still on top of the two mountains? Well, so, so that's yeah. one of the questions. Where is everybody? What, Does so, it have to be physical? It can't mean he took a step in the direction of? Not metaphorically. Okay. Well, you, I mean, yes, you can say walking in the paths of God. Right, you will walk in the paths of God, but but Torah doesn't use it to mean. It can be a euphemism, but it also like when Moshe turns aside to see the bush, right? Yes, it's a literal turning aside, but of course, it's a metaphorical turning towards as well. But there's a physical, right? The physical is implied by this. So the rabbis jump on. Where was he? Why was he not with the people? Like maybe he was taking a nap. Like maybe he was, you know, finishing writing Deuteronomy. Like he could have been, but it doesn't say. And Moshe got up from his tent and went to meet the people. Vayelech Moshe vayidaber. Moshe went and talked. Okay, so that's right there an invitation to the rabbis. It's an engraved invitation to all kinds of midrash. One midrash is that Moshe is going to the tent of every single Israelite and telling them not to be afraid. Wouldn't they be collected together, though? But he's going, but where is he, Vayelechen? He's going, he's Vayelech to every single tent to, to assure the people that it's going to be okay and not to be afraid when he's no longer with, to explain what's happening, essentially. Lovely. So that tells us more about the rabbis than it does about... Deuteronomy, but that's the way it is with Midrash so often. What does it tell us about the rabbis and their vision of leadership? One of my big papers in school was what does the rabbinic image of the angel of death tell us about the, the rabbis' relationship to death? Do the rabbis write this to Lech Lecha? Uh, no. It's the, isn't it the same root? 
Yes, but but in that sense, there's no command to Moshe. Lech. That he's going. It's not the imperative, right? So it just says, and he went. And it's a physical went. And it's it's a physical wenting. Um, and he, he's not going to went very much, right? So he's, he's older. So what does this tell us about the rabbinic understanding of leadership, or at least ideal leadership? If that's their midrash. You have to connect as a leader to each person. And the fact is he's already distanced. Ah, how is he distanced? Maybe he senses his fate. So he might feel that he's been somehow distanced from the people in his leadership role, and he's coming back to, this, to the campaign trail, right? He's stumping. Well, he's felt all along that he's distanced from the people. Sometimes he's pretty fed up with them. Yeah, he's angry. Um, Is there any indication at all that when, when these writings were being written, there was any feeling of there being a lasting book? I mean, was it just written for the moment? That writers now, I think, look at their writing with the intention, serious writers, of there being something in there that will last for future generations. For sure. This, because this is a religious reform. So it was so supposed to last. intending it to make a difference for the future. Well, remember, this is the character Moses. Mm-hmm. Right? So he, he's trying to communicate to the people. The character Moses is trying to communicate to the people before they go off without him what they need to know. So in effect, he's still speaking to each one of us. Yeah, yes. And that was yes. the intent that it would well, ab- Absolutely. Um, all right, so a leader has to, meet, yeah. has to speak to each person. But the other thing is that the rabbis seem to suggest it's that Moshe went to them. They didn't come. He to didn't them. wait for them to come to him, as so many leaders do. They wait until something gets to them. That for the rabbis, the way that they seem to value leadership is a leader who's willing to humble themselves and to go out among the people and talk to the people. In, in that being the midrash, right? So that's and we always have to look at midrash and say, what's the agenda, right, of the rabbis in writing that midrash? All right. Kind of sad. And it's sad. he's saying goodbye. It's very sad. At the sad. same time, he's going I'm everybody and saying... I'm so sad for Moshe this year. So, Vayelech Moshe. So, and Moshe goes, went and Vayedeberetah Devarim Ha'ela, and he goes to speak these Devarim, right? What is this book called? Devarim. Right? So, these things, these words, there's no difference in Hebrew between word and thing. In English, the word is the thing that in, in English, a word points to a thing, right? The, but in Hebrew, davar means word, and davar means thing, which is very interesting. Like, there's no, there's no difference between word and thing. Word and, and the, the way you, you <coughs> evoke the thing when it's not here, let's say, table, you, you immediately get an idea of a table, right? You, you, get, you have a word for it. Right? That's what language is all about, indicating something that's not, you know, that's either there or not there. But you know, table, you, you immediately have something that happens when you say table. Um, but there's no difference between that and the table in Hebrew. So it's an interesting, the split that happens later after this is the, begins with the Greeks. And that is the split between the abstract and the material, the actual 
right? The abstract, the word for something is ideal. The word table is the ideal table. The, the, what, what table conjures up when I say it is the ideal. Once you have a real table, it's flawed because it's in the material world and there's, it's got a nick and it's a little unbalanced. It's, it, by definition, is less than and is flawed. So then what happens is ideas become spirit, ideas, abstract becomes valued, and nature, material, actual becomes denigrated. In the Greek system, Western thinking inherited and bought into that split. And that is when we hear, you know, that the idea is better than, you know, lived reality, you know, that ideas are, you know, the thing, that the words are what matters, not what actually happens as much. And um, nature gets denigrated, as do, of course, women who are associated with the natural world. So, you know, lots of things happen as a result of that split, um, including the denigration of the material world and our interaction with it. Um, that is not here. And I think that it, in a way, this davar and davar is really clear evidence of that. The word and the thing are not, are not different, fundamentally. What does it tell us? Um, what does it tell us? It tells, okay, it doesn't say as much about the Israelite society as it does what's not there that we've inherited. We've inherited, as Westerners, the idea that the idea, the word, the abstract table is better than, is perfect, right? Think of Aristotle. Think of Plato. It lives beyond. It's eternal. And it's perfect. Only, only a theoretical table can be perfect, says Aristotle. Once you're in the material world, it can no longer be perfect, Right? And so, and and God, of course, is perfect, and so is not in the material, in the material world the same and way. And the Romans who conquered more of the world than any other society. Well, right. So they inherit that idea and they spread it everywhere, and including to us. Perceive all these holy books from the perspective of a Greek. Say that again. So, all the holy books we regard them through the perspective. We Often, I think so, yes. We just can't help it because we're Westerners. So I'm always wanting to lift Mm -hmm. up where is Israelite culture and Jewish culture dissonant with our Western way of reading things and seeing things and understanding things. And I've heard some rabbis argue this is where we have a problem with is God perfect, is God all-powerful, because we're so used to the abstract idea being the best. Judaism is a lot more about this world, and that's where there's a lot Mm -hmm. of conflict with other religions that see the world as filled with original sin and filled with imperfection, and only being on top of a mountain or being in heaven or whatever can get you better. And where where you're supposed to be. Right. Right. Uh, I wonder, are, are today's, some of today's native cultures actually close to what you're describing uh, as ancient Israelite cultures? Yes, right. I think they are. A lot of original peoples yeah. ha- have a very different understanding than what we inherited so. as Western thinking from the, from the Greeks. All right, what does Moshe say next? What, what does he go to say? Vayomer Alehem, and he says to them, Right? So you could, 
You could support the rabbi's reading that he went to every tent. Because it doesn't say, and he gathered them all together. It just says he went out and he said to them. It supports the rabbinic midrash that, they, that he went to every single tent. I'm not going to lean on it any harder, but just, it's just kind of interesting how the Hebrew is written. So, and he says to them, Ben Esrim Shana Anochi, Hayom. I am 120 years old today. Lo uchal od latzeit velavo. I'm not able anymore to go out and to come in. Va'adonai amari lai lo ta'avor etayardein hazeh. And Yudhei Vavhei has said to me, you will not cross over this Jordan. So Zornberg talks in this really beautiful passage that it takes me like six hours to understand. <laughs> she talks in this really beautiful way. Uh, you know, her book is called, um, the, her book on Genesis is um, the, something about desire. Beginnings of Desire. Thank you. Her next book is The Particulars of Rapture on Exodus. Um, She calls the one on numbers Bewilderments. Um, And in that book, Bewilderments, she talks about the uh, place where we, she quotes this verse from Deuteronomy in talking about to la'avor, to cross, to cross over. (laughs) Thank you, Judith. Um, I don't know if it's the air conditioning. I get drippy. Um, so this word, la'avor, to cross over. Tell me about what the Hebrews, what, what, is, what are they called? The Hebrews. What are, what, in Hebrew, what do we call Hebrews? Oh, Thank you. Ivrim. And what have I taught you? Oh, really? And these are mine. Um, and what have I taught you is one of the origins of the word Ivri. Egyptian hieroglyphics? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Elena. That's so helpful. Egyptian hieroglyphics. Well, the word is mentioned in that stella in Cairo. So, As a proof of their existence. Right. So, we, so we're told that there is this group, right? Um, and they're... Ephraim, <sighs> Right. Okay. So what... Well, look at the Hebrew, uh, Rita. <laughs> well, you just pick up from the Hebrew where I'm going. I'm no spray stuff. <laughs> not more. I mean... Yes! Yes! I mean, that's how we got to Ivrim. Right. So Ivrim, Hebrews. But, but what does it mean? Right? We just take that... We just accept it. Hebrews. What, what, what the heck does that mean? If you look at the Hebrew for Hebrews, the people who have crossed the people over. who have crossed over la'avor to cross over this word here, right? That we are avorim. We are crossers over. That that is what it comes from. Probably meaning a geographical. Crossing over, right, or or across a body of water, or you know what, whatever it is, it is clearly you know about locale. Where do these people come from? They're the crossers over. But if we're going to take crossing over in a, at a different level, right? So they are migrants. 
What, what have they crossed over? We can talk about that. But, but the idea that, that Zorberg lifts up so beautifully is lavor, to cross over, means I'm, I'm not going to be where I was. And crossing over is about desire to be somewhere else, having crossed over something. And for these titles she uses about desire, that's her whole hinge on which everything turns, is desire. What is the name of her book again? The first one is The Beginnings of Desire, her commentary on Genesis. Her commentary on Exodus is um, The Particulars of Rapture. And her book on numbers is Bewilderment. The Wilderness? <laughs> the Bewilderment. So, um, what, about what about her commentary on I'm still waiting with the rest of the world uh, at Leviticus. Waiting for, waiting for Leviticus. I know. So, um, well, because they're incredible. They're so incredible that it takes a lifetime, I imagine, to to write one of these. But this this idea. So this is another reason I'm feeling so much for Moshe right now is this sense of wanting so badly to cross over. And he's not going to be able to. Their story is going to continue. They're going to cross over. They're going to have this experience of being somewhere where they're not now. And he's not going to have it with them. He's not going to witness it. He's not going to have anything to do with it. And his book now closes. Like he's, he's gone as far as he's going to go. All he's been through. After all he's been through, he's not going to Avor. He's not going to cross. Maybe the original Ivrim crossing over refers to what we think of as Pesach, uh, coming out. Although they're named this in Egypt. Well, they came from Canaan originally. So it it would have to be the coming down, not the going out. So Pesach is the going out. Yes. They get this name before that. And if they do it twice, they're double crossers. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Sorry. Right. Well, so they, we, yeah, we don't know. Would you repeat that? We can. This, this is the word in one of the parent languages of Hebrew that we see. Um, we see this word appear, apiru. And so it is possible, you have to be exposed enough to the parent languages of Hebrew and Hebrew and Old Hebrew to get it, but they actually are similar. The ah beginning, the v and p are very close. So apiru, ibri, it could be, they could be related. We don't know. Um, we don't know. So, but that's one of the places people look, which is this, this Apiru, uh, and have it be a cognate of uh, Ivrim. All right. So I just want us to hold this lavor, this to cross over business, as we read the next lines. So I, I'm not able to go out and come in, and God has told me that I'm not going to cross over this Jordan. So there's lots written on what does it mean, let's say, belavo, to go out and to come in. Why is to go out written first and then to come right? So there's lots the rabbis do with that. 
Adonai Elohecha hu over lefanecha. Right? So Yud Hevafe, your God, who over lefanecha. God will cross over before you. Who Yashmiditat Goyim. God will destroy, right, the wipe out the the nations from before you, right? Yoshua, who over lefanecha. And Joshua, he will cross over before you. As God has spoken. Right? So it's just this, I'm just drawn to the, how many times this crossing over is mentioned by Moshe. I'm not going to cross over. God is going to cross over with you in front of you. Joshua is going to cross over with you. I'm not. Right? So this, for me, it's very poignant this year. What? All right. So God will deliver them to you and you sh- and will deal with them in full accordance with the instruction that I have enjoined upon you verse 5. Right? According to the mitzvah that I have tzivad. According to the literally commandment that I have commanded you. Chizku be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. And don't be in dread from before them, from their faces. Because your God, it is God who walks with you. God will not fail you nor forsake you. This is exactly what he's going to say to Joshua. Chazak ve'amatz. Be strong and courageous. So, isn't this a lesson for our lives that it isn't enough? I mean, that we have the outside of our children, we parted our knowledge that we're okay to not go on and maybe not see our daughter's wedding or because there's always one more thing that you want to hang out for. I could just get into the promised land, you know. But I think it's really for me a model when he says, you know, I'm not going to go, and I've accepted that. But you go, and you be strong. Um, because there's always one more thing we can just hang, wish to hang on for, and then we're never going to be okay. Yeah, and and some of the saddest moments I've ever had as a rabbi is being at the deathbed mm-hmm. and people telling me with tears streaming down their faces, I'm not going to see that grandchild. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to make the wedding. I thought I could make the wedding. Yeah. I'm not going to make the wedding. So is this the model? Maybe. But what if Moshe is saying all this with tears streaming down his face? Like this year? I don't know. Like I have Moshe, you know, crying as he says, I'm not going with you. I'm not going to avoid, I'm not going to cross it, right? And, and, and look, it could be read either way. I, I totally get it. That this could be like what, the perfect model of, you know, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. God's going with you. I'm not. It's fine. Joshua's going to be, my mommy's going to be with you. You know, daddy's not going to be there. so human. Um, I mean, I can but see it's, uh, too. But it's, you know, it's also sometimes people really at the end, 
you know, even I have a sense of it that, you know, when I knew I wasn't having a baby till 38, like I just got my head around, I probably won't see grandchildren. You know, we're having children later and later. If she gets an education, whatever, you know, it's, I had a baby knowing I don't, I don't in any way expect to see, to live to see grandchildren. Well, guess what? Now that she's becoming a young woman, <laughs> and now that she's almost 15, and I look at her on the bima, like, uh, my heart catches. It's like, what if I don't see her babies? Like, wh- oh, my God, what was I thinking? <laughs> like, I had no idea that I would care about grandchildren until I had a daughter whose babies I would care about. Like, so it's just... And what about the feelings it's, before your surgery? It's, it's one thing to, to, like, to know intellectually, we're going to end and we're not going to go on and I'm not going to see, I'm certainly not going to see great-grandchildren. I think we can be pretty confident about that. But um, it's another thing when in some ways we're actually confronted with that reality and like what that actually means right to... I'd like to think that we're all in the face that time. Fine, but I Yeah, right. And I mean, in general, my experience is people tend to die the way they've lived. Um, They don't change a whole lot, generally, at the end. Um, But there are these moments that were abstract before, and now that the end is, is clear and is immediate... There is a sadness and a loss that that comes with that 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 didn't happen before. That's why I hand over. This is a little different in that Moses uh, <coughs> sort of thought he had to deal with God. <laughs> I mean, the whole point of this book is I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I'm going to get you over there, and you're going to lead them. What one of our one of our members, um, we just found out that his cousin, you know, thirty six years old, just died of breast cancer, having just delivered her third baby. She had to deal with God. I bet that she certainly would live to see the third birthday of her third. Right? I mean, yes. And isn't that isn't that why it's so poignant? Like we all we have we think we have this deal that like it, it, surely you'll make it through whatever and then someone dies young and and you're like wait 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 we had a we had a deal like wait what I'm eating right. I exercise. I'm a marathon runner. Well, that'll kill your hips, though. Um, so like you know um, we yes I know what you're saying that kind of literally Moses had a deal but. Moses, like everybody else, can wreck it, right? I mean, because according to God, Moshe wrecked it. Um, or, or we've read it before that Moshe didn't wreck it. God just gets it that, you know what, you're not the guy to take them over. We need new leadership. You know what I mean? So I, I just think it's, it's a, it holds that what you're saying exactly holds, that Moshe's like, wait a minute. <laughs> and in the Midrash, Moshe isn't, wait, 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 wait. Really? Right? And begs for his life. And rages a little bit. (laughs) I I could read this in a way that Moses is making his valedictory speech. He recognizes reality. He's 100. Actually, he's now 121. He was 120 last year. (laughs) (laughs) But. 
I, I could sense a feeling of acceptance and some level of pride that he took this ragged group out of Egypt and slavery and delivered them to a whole different life. They're literally, metaphorically crossing over. It's going to be a different people. And I think, I sense that he recognizes that. And his job is done, and he feels pretty good about it. Okay. Good. You're going to have a lot better time with this Parsha than I am this year. Yeah, I read it differently where it says, uh, uh, God will not fail you or forsake you like he did me. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful, George. Right? God won't fail you or forsake you because y'all aren't the leaders of this people. The leaders of this people are held to a different standard. Right? Like that's one of the rabbinic explanations for why that one act by Moshe gets him a death sentence. Right? Wait, what? Because he misspoke a little bit? Because he was, well, you can't afford, the rabbis You almost unanimously say, because you, as the leader, you can't do that. Right? You can't tweet certain things <laughs> once you have a certain level of, so you... You're, wa- you're watched and seen differently. And so definitely I think there's an element of, you know, of, yeah, you, you're, you're going to be okay, y'all. It's those of us who take on leadership positions, right, who get schmeist for some small thing. Although they've had their share of getting schmeist. <laughs> uh, but, of course, they deserve it according to, according to Toro's understanding. All right. Um, seven. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and resolute, for it is you who shall go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their fathers to give them, and it is you who shall shall apportion it to them. And the Lord himself will go before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Fear not and be not dismayed. So, George... Let's now read exactly your reading of what happens here. Yeah, like What's happening here? He's uh, saying uh, he screwed me, but you're going to be fine. <laughs> right? So possibly, if we take your reading, Moshe saying to Joshua, I know you've seen how badly this job sucks. <laughs> and I know you've seen the consequences of even a little misstep in this job, chazak ve'ematz, right? Be strong, good luck. Chazak ve'ematz, right? right? Good luck. But, um, but, but assuring Joshua as he steps into a position of, let's be frank, danger. Joshua's not just going to lead this people. Joshua's going to lead them in a military campaign. So not only is he going to be the leader and then have to deal with what that means, right, with God, but and the position that puts him in vis-a-vis the people. Remember, Moses had his life in danger. Not only has he had problems with, with God, right, but mostly with the people threatening his life. They've threatened his life several times. And... You know, so Moshe could be saying to Joshua, you've seen what this job entails. It's going it's to be okay. It's going to be different for you, all right? It's going to be different. You'll be, you'll, you're going to be fine. But God has dealt partially with the people. Yeah. <laughs> the people go yeah. crossing over, not the original one. Yeah. And they said, uh-uh, you're not going. And the trek that should have taken two weeks has taken 40 years. Yeah. Right. 
The, the only difference is, the only difference I'll lift up is that if you look at the people, they've consistently screwed up. Consistently. And finally, God's, you could argue, God's had it. Like, by the time they don't go fight when they're supposed to, and then they start whining, okay, we'll fight, we'll fight, we'll fight. God's like, I'm done. I'm done. It's clear to me y'all are not the ones to go over, right? So, um, as opposed to Moshe, who, what's Moshe done? Right? He, he one tiny slip up because he's furious with the people. And God is not going to let him afford to cross over because of the because pe- he did something for the people, these people, <laughs> right? So it just feels a little lopsided. Yes, these people's gotten schmeist, right? But you could argue they've kind of earned it, <laughs> you know. Moshe, what, what has Moshe done other than suffer? And every time God wants to wipe them out, Moshe says no, right? Falls on his face or says destroy me to them. Or what are they going to say about you? What are the Egyptians going to say about you, right? Like, um, and for one, you know, little thing. All right. So, uh, what's your name, Bert? Moses <laughs> wrote. <laughs> I mean, my boss, people. Can, my boss. Can I, I, I do want to make one comment. You, you were talking about not seeing whether it be grandchildren, not seeing fill in the blank. Right. The same thing is true of, for many of us, of our parents and almost certainly our grandparents who didn't live to see us today. And for me, it's not just forward, but I'm, I'm part of a, a long chain. And what I do today is, really, you know, my father and my mother can't see me. My grandparents, my great-grandparents, how many people going all the way back? So it's, it's, it's part of this whole continuum. So, so say more about that. What does that mean? That they can't see me, therefore? Therefore, I feel like I'm part of something big and much bigger than myself, and that they can't see me. I know in the same way I won't be able to see my grandchildren, I mean my great-grandchildren. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. Certainly when I look, I mean we had one of our granddaughters turn 20 today. And I'm thinking, you know... <coughs> I probably won't see her when she's 40. I may not see her when she's 30. Right. What's going to happen? Right. You know, is she going to get married? What kind of a woman will she become? And that brings, that brings a sadness. But it's part of the human condition. Because the same thing was true of our parents and our grandparents. Yeah, yeah maybe you never can go on. I mean, that's the first mm-hmm. thing you have to accept is you're, you're never going to go on, but it's the door to the door. And you have to be part of the chain. But it is. I guess the point is... It, at least for me personally, feeling that I'm part of a chain, feeling that I'm part of something much bigger than myself in terms of my family and in terms of the people gives me, gives me a better context than thinking I was born, I'm going to die, and that's it. Right. So it's two things. You know, it, it always ends and it never ends at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. Great. Right. And that, that can we read ourselves into something larger so that we can live with the fact that we know we're mortal? Right, I mean, I, it's a tragedy to be conscious. Right? It's like, yeah, it's going to be a great Yom Kippur sermon, isn't it? Um, you can feel it already. You can feel it already. Um, but the, I mean, it's a tragedy to know you're going to end, right? And so part of it, yeah, we know, we know from the beginning that we're going to end. But it's also like, well, 
Well, then how do you, I mean, it's been, it's been the big, obviously, I don't, I'm not the first one to think of it. It's the big question. Like, how do you go on with anything knowing it's temporary? It could be tomorrow. The business I'm in, I feel like I sidestep a grenade or a landmine <laughs> every day that I don't get the phone call. It's stage four. I'm serious. Like, I, I get too many phone calls out of nowhere, right, that it's somebody's got what. So, so I feel like it's like, how do we move forward with confidence and with joy and with hope and with expansiveness when you know it's going to end? And this is what Yom Kippur is all about, which is why we're, I feel like the, the rabbis are so wise that we're reading this as we're going into Yom Kippur. Oh, I see a bunch of hands. Whereas we're going into Yom Kippur facing the fact that we're going to end because the challenge is, okay, so how do I then let that inform how I live now? That's part of it. And how do I read myself into something big enough that I can be comforted by that enough to keep moving forward even knowing so? Paula? And I think there's also a knowing about So I think, but that takes an incredibly mature, sane, and healthy approach by the 75-year-old. But sure, but what I'm saying is, there are so many people who don't consciously engage with it that they help cause a crisis for their children because they're in denial or they're in crisis about being 75, facing 90. Right. So it really it depends on our willingness to age wisely. This is an advertisement. Um, So we're going to start another wise aging cohort. So, um, right, so it's all about how do we hold this? How do we face this topic? How do we talk about this topic with adult children? How do we talk about this topic with 15-year-old children, um, how do we deal with it ourselves, right? The aging process, the decline, the and, and I'm not saying decline in a judgmental way. I'm saying just the physical reality of, you know, of things wearing out and, and, of, and of the changes. And so all of that is like, right? So I just want to I just want to say the kudos, right? That, you know, that we're that we're getting it. That this this conversation is really, really important, and our attitude is really important to it. Carol, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I was just going to say something, and I think it it makes it that much more Well, there's lots you can do, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's one approach. <laughs> Robert well, and then Carol? Stephen, there, there are two things, at least two things, that this book very consistently points to, and that is uh, not, not in order, 
the importance of the land. So you're saying two things that Deuteronomy points no, no, to? No, the, the Torah itself. The yeah, Torah. I have a different yeah, book than yeah, you do. Yeah. So. No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, one is respect for the land, mm -hmm. really, and, and the other is community, including even strangers and da 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 da. And there, there's a lot of continuity in both of those as sort of a key message. Uh, you may be here for a little bit, but the land and community are going to be here forever. So land and community are both bigger than you uh, and, and way more permanent than you, and you can and, be part of those. make sure that you try to leave both in better Shape and you found it. Right. You or have, else. Your, <laughs> your responsibility, right, is to affect what you can while you're part of it. And then it's up to other generations, right? Carol? Um, I was just thinking that if you feel that you did the best you could do, that you were really non judgmental of yourself and put out there to your children and your children's children. This is what I can give you. This is what I can do. What I can pass on to you, and then trust that they will carry that forward. Then what? That they will carry that forward after you've gone. Yeah. That, so <laughs> if you can do all that, then what? Then, but then you succeeded. Ah. Okay. <laughs> then that is a successful life. Oh yeah. Okay, Sarah. Answer that and say, then you are living forever. Ah, then oh, you yeah. live you forever. Your children yeah. and grandchildren, <laughs> to bring it on home, have taken part in their own way, but in the tradition that you have handed them, then you're living forever. I mean, I think this is one of the really important pieces of having a tradition that is mm -hmm. generational, is, is I think it does give us, it's one of the few things that can give us that sense. I mean, I do look at my daughter's hands and go, okay, my hands live on. <laughs> she also got my bony elbows and knees. I said, I'm sorry for that, but they're going to live on too. But they're right there. So some of it is, you know, that kind of connection. And, and another piece of it is this is the tradition that was handed to me and lived by the generations before me. And and you will live it too in your own way. Um, I think it is one of the few things that does give us that sense of immortality in, in that we're part of it and connected to it, and that doesn't go away even, if, even when we do. Um, I think a lot about people without children in our tradition in particular. It's very difficult for them. So on the one hand, this is very comforting and very empowering. On the other hand, we leave people out who don't have children in a way that's really problematic um, to make, if that's what we focus on, that I'm doing this because I pass it to my children, right, which is what a lot of us do. We focus on, I'm going to light candles at home so my daughter lights candles when she, you know, I'm going to do it so that she, we, we, we get a little bit myopic in that we don't focus on kind of the bigger, what, what is our connection, what's our meaning from it just for us, for now, for what we're doing with Judaism. Does that make sense? I mean, I just feel that there's always a, a rub. There's a tension there. No children here. No children, says Mehmet. Um, um, that's why we're trying to write in, you know, books and mm -hmm. films, and that, that's how you leave the legacy. Right. I wanted to make a remark about Moshe as a political Mm -hmm. I see him as a political leader as well. 
And he sets a perfect example here uh, by acknowledging that his time is uh, running. He elects a new leader. Uh, and he makes reassurances to his, both to his people and to um, uh, Joshua here. Mm -hmm. Unlike any, unlike uh, many political leaders we see in our time and before us and probably after us as well, most political leaders would not uh, designate someone. They would not make reassurances. They would make work the world you know, a hell of a place. So he's, he sets an example. So and the rabbis are very clear about why it says lifne ene, you know, before the eyes of all the people, so that there would be no clandestine anointing of the next leader. That Moshe does it publicly, so that there should be a very clear transfer of authority and power, a peaceful transition, you know, of power. Um, and that that it's, that's, Small D. well, nobody, Small D. they don't have elections, right? No, but he acts as but, but they don't have, he's, he's not asking anyone's opinion on who the leader should be. He's very clear that God is choosing Joshua, and so he will invest Joshua with his, his Moshe's authority, but I think they, the, the, it is saying something about the need for the people to ratify that transition because that's the healthiest way for leaders to um, succeed each other is that the people see, that everyone knows what's happening. It's, uh, what do you call it when you can see through? It's um, transparent. transparent. Thank you. The transfer of parent is, of power is transparent. And... Um, what was I going to say about that? Um, and so, oh, and that, and that, so he, and he tells Joshua, Chazak ve'ematz, right? He says to Joshua the same thing he says to the people. You're of these people, and you, and, but now you're being lifted to um, a different position, and, and you have God's and my blessing, and, and I transfer some of my authority um, to you, and it allows the people to relax because it has Moshe's blessing. Like, had Joshua come out with a document that said, Here's Moshe's signed statement that I should be the next leader. It doesn't have the same ability for the people to trust that Moshe's trust is in Joshua. Right? It's a very important moment that Moshe makes it clear to the people he has my ultimate confidence yeah. as a leader. Right. Right. And then what happens is. War, right? And it's also interesting. The rabbis also point to the fact that who doesn't become the leader? Aaron. Aaron. Aaron's dead. Oh, right. So that would be interesting for Aaron to become the leader. But um, Moses' sons. His kids do not become the leaders. So it's very clear right away from the beginning that that it's not about blood. It's, unless you're a priest, but remember, a priest and a Levite is about responsibility and danger, not about privilege. So, but the privilege and the responsibility of leadership does not transfer because of genetics. It transfers because of who the leader is and what the qualities of the leader are. That is a huge statement that gets made here. This is not a dynasty. This is whoever will lead this people, it will be because of who they are, the characteristics that they have, the, you know, the, the, their, their qualities of, of leadership appropriate for the time. But wasn't Joshua uh, sort of 
chosen as a general, I mean, as a, as a military. Yeah. So he's right. He's the one appropriate for the next, for the campaign, right? Um, and he's been he's been Moshe's protege. You know, he's been with Moshe all along. He goes up the mountain. You know, like so. It's not like and and it's it's he's got God's favor, but he shows up. Where does he show up? Where does Joshua stand out and stand up and show the out spies. at the spies, at the scouts, the incident with the scouts? It's only Yehoshua and Kalev that go up against the mob and say, no, it's a good land, and we can do this, and it's possible, right? And then you, you, and you know what everybody else is going to You're so naive, you're going to get us all killed, right? <laughs> Anybody who's, God forbid, optimistic and positive is naive and going to get us all killed, right? So I've heard it so many times, I can't even tell you, right? You're going to get us all killed. So, um, so Joshua has what it takes, right, to be the optimist and to be courageous and to be brave and to stand up against pressure. And, right, so he's proven himself. He's got God's favor, and now he, Moshe makes it clear to the people that he He's got Moshe's confidence. He's the leader for the time. And that, I think, is a very Jewish thing. Not that there haven't been dynasties of rabbis. There have been. Don't get me wrong. Um, but in general, it's like not who, you're, it's not who you're descended from. If you heard my Rosh Hashanah talk, mm-hmm. we're descended from Adam. Mm-hmm. Everybody's descended from Adam, the earthling. Everybody. And the rabbis of the Talmud would ask, why is that the way the story goes? It could have gone anyway. It could have been, happened anyway. So that no one can say to somebody else, my ancestor is greater than yours. Because ultimately, if you start down that path, where are you going to end up? Adam and Chava. Really? Your ancestor is greater than mine? Last time I checked, we all came from one, right? Or now we would say as you know, evolution, when we understand, like, we all came from the savannah. We all came from the same troop of monkeys. Like, really? Your ancestors greater? Right, so, but, because the rabbis understood the value of that in a world that tends towards rewarding people and giving them things based on yichas, you know, based on where they come from and what their lineage is rather than who they are. And I think this is, remains a powerful argument against them. Yeah, you know, this is my first time reading this text, and of the ones I've read encountered this year, this feels to me like the most humanizing text that I've encountered. It's like overwhelming in the sense that as opposed to like Jesus, Moses is not retaining the title as I'm the conduit to God. He goes individually and he humanizes his God is with you. God is already with you. You just don't believe that. So those people might, you know, the they might have like fear or shame or like the lack of the belief that I'm not worthy of God walking with me. And Moses is saying, hey, like, He's here. Just trust. Right. Trust and behave. Because then God won't go with you, right? Right. And the land will spit you out. So trust that God is with you and therefore do what God demands of you, right? Behave and it will be fine, right? And it's a powerful thing that we, we talked about at the Golden Calf, right? That we talked about this whole business that, that the danger was that Moshe got idolized, right? Moshe was gone, and when Moshe was gone too long, what happened? The people freaked out and needed another idol. What does another idol mean? Like Moshe was already too, too identified with God, right? And um, that that was a serious corrective, right? Um, and that this is absolutely, absolutely the case, is that Moshe says none of the godliness it doesn't go with me. It's not 
it's not me. You don't get anything because of me. Of course, they get forgiven a lot because mm-hmm. of Moshe. But, um, but, but God being with you has nothing to do with me. It is existential and stative that God is with you and is going before you. Right? And you just have to hold up your end of that bargain. That's all you have to do. <laughs> it's like, just do the right thing every time. Um, Mark Twain, who has written something really quite beautiful about the Jews, was very interested in Jewish culture and history, also said, we have no fear of what came before us. Why are we afraid of what will come after us? Which is the same continuity that Sarah was talking about. We see ourselves as part of a continuity if we're in a place where we have a continuity, and we're part of, we're part of forever. So why, why? I'll tell you why, because we don't remember. That's why. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, that's what I think. Well, we don't remember what was before. So, so well, we don't have... to study it here, it doesn't <laughs> frighten us that this happened before we were here. It scares the crap out of me. Oh, does it? It scares the crap out of me. So, like, I, you because I don't remember what was before. So, why do I have any comfort that it's going to be okay? No, but when you read about what did happen, it frightened you that you weren't there while it happened? No, because I wasn't here yet, obviously. So, it's once one is aware of one's own existence, then that existence being that's what he's saying being obliterated is you can't have the same relationship to the past that you have no. now that you're here you just but can't that ego involvement is what he's saying is not the significant thing right the continuity of life right well that's lovely <laughs> but it's until true. you get the phone call well do, do, I'm, I'm just saying I think they're both until you have a brush right it depends or it's really happening right it depends but on even I, I think I think the ego gets downplayed way too much in our Western society. I really do. Post Freud, I think it gets a bad rap. I really do. Like that this is this is all an illusion. No, it's not. No, it's not an illusion. And well, that's just your ego talking. Okay, so why does that make it less right like, impactful for me that my ego's invested in my own survival? Like you know, like it. I don't know. I think I feel like we wait till you get to be seventy-five. Was that how Levi should only be? It should only be. Um, but it's. But but you're at a stage where you've got more ahead of you than behind you. I, well, probably. no, probably. I don't think so. I'm fifty-three years old. I, I probably most of it's behind me now. Twenty. <laughs> yeah, from your mouth. Um, but I really do. I, I do. I feel like we somehow in this Freudian era, like really. We, we, we are too quick to say we need to rise above. To get to a place ultimately of being okay with things, of course we have to rise above our, our own ego, our own, you know, our own individual obsessions and whatever. And I just feel like, I don't know, like, but that's where the good stuff is. That's where the poignancy is. That's where the beauty is. You don't make love to an idea. No. You make love to a person who's there. Who, you, you make love to the details. You, you cherish a, a child, a dog, for their uniqueness and their here and nowness. And I just feel like I just want to make sure we're always honoring that when we say, oh, but the dog that was here is now part of doghood in general. And it's like, yes, that's a lovely, comforting thing to get to. You I know, so but that doesn't... You still want it now. I still want it now. Yeah, and I still do. miss... 
But I, I still miss and long for. I do feel part of something more than just me. Right. I mean, and that's you know that's ultimately what we're doing here. He's married, but Rappaport's son. No. Caleb's going in. No, Caleb's going in. in. Joshua and Caleb are the only ones who are going in. Yeah, bless you. So, yeah, we see see him. All right. I mean, you have to remember, we never read on. Right? In Torah study, we don't read on. We don't read the book of Joshua. So we don't see these people (laughs) again. (laughs) All right. So so I just want to bring us to um, Rabbi Rami Shapiro in the handout that I gave you. Second page. page. Try to trick me, Rita. Not going to (laughs) work. So it's it's uh, he's looking at the verse. Rami Shapiro is looking at the verse that we read one one and two. That uh, I'm now 120 years old. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. Moreover, God has said to me, "You cannot go over there." And so the shot, the simple reading, second page. Flip the page over, and you should have a second page. Why does Moshe have to say these things to all of Israel? Can't they see he's old and infirm? Like, so what does that mean? That Moshe says, now I'm old. Well, at 120, you've been old for a little while, right? Like, can't they see he's old and infirm? What does he gain by making this admission? And what did the people gain by his admission? What might you can by what, what what might you can by it as well? I suppose that means what might you gain right from it as well. So kind of this, what does it mean that the leader is ready to say, "I am officially old and unable to go out and come in"? What is it to like be a leader and own right that you're so that he's accepting it, he's admitting it, whether he's accepted it or not, he's admitting it, you know, and he knows that it's time to retire to retire, right? So now we're going to drop to the next level. So um, you, you all know about Pardes, yeah? Have we we've talked about Pardes? Pardes uh, literally means orchard in Hebrew. But it is an acronym for the rabbis. For Pshat, Remez, Drash, Sod. So every single verse of Torah has these four levels. Pshat, the surface reading, the simple reading. The remez, the hint. What's it hinting at? The drash, kind of unpacking it, and sowed, the secret. The real secret message of that that, uh, pasuk, that sentence. So every single verse of Torah has pardes. And so every, every Torah commentary that uh, Rabbi Rami Shapiro does, he breaks down into, or at least in this series, um, Pshat, Remez, Drash, um, and Sod. Okay, so he's giving us, so we just read the Pshat. Um, now we get to the Remez. Why does Torah say go out and in rather than in and out? The more common usage. Is it necessary to go out before we come in? But then is that different than needing to be in before we can go out? Does in imply out and out imply in? And if so, is there anything such as really in or really out in and of themselves? Meaning, right, are they they relational? Like, do, do in and out have meanings without each other? Or is each a relative of the other? What might this be saying about life and its supposed opposites? Right, we've talked about this before when we talked about the Garden of Eden. Good and evil. What? What is it? Can you possibly comprehend good without 
evil. Can they, right, anyway, I'm not going to go down that road. I've, keep, I've kept you too long already. Okay, um, Drash. Reb Mordechai Liner of Ishbika taught that Moses is saying he has reached the stage of complete enlightenment. It is no longer necessary for him to go in or out or over there. All is here and now. There is no land other than that beneath his feet. There is no in or out, only here. The journey is set aside because the place is found. What keeps you on the path rather than recognizing you've already arrived? What keeps you tied to in and out, here and there, us and them, God and creation? Right? Rami is very much into meditation and, and Buddhist teaching. Um, Sod. So his, his Judaism is very much informed by um, Buddhist teaching. Sod. So now we're going to get to the secret, right? The mystical reading. In this portion, Moses embraces all opposites in a greater unity, meaning he doesn't have to go out and in anymore because there is no in and out. He doesn't need to cross over there because everything is right here. This is the epitome of enlightenment. The relative is em- embraced. Thank you. The relative is embraced and is embraced by the absolute. In Hebrew, we say yesh. The world of opposites is linked to ayin, the world of unity. Yesh means is. Ayin means nothing, capital N. So yesh and ayin, something and nothing, um, he's saying here is, is really um, opposites, meaning there's differences because it's the world of stuffness and ayin, nothingness is unity. Um, so the, both the world of opposites is linked to ayin, the world of unity, and both are manifestations of God, the one beyond both the relative and absolute. This awareness of the unity of yesh and ayin is the goal of all spiritual practice. Yet once attained, we realize there was nothing to attain. It was always here and now, right here and right now. Feel the greater oneness of God. Don't go in. Don't go out. Just be. What happened? You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.